Well, if you would turn in your Bibles to John chapter 6, our text this morning as we work through John's gospel together is John 6, 48 through 59. While you're turning there, I want you to consider in recent years in Silicon Valley, there's been the birth of a new field of research, indeed a new industry called life extension. And some of it is um, just simple, how you can live a healthier life, but uh, others of it has to do with something quite different. An ABC News article put it this way, it says, Today, Silicon Valley is littered with life extension labs and startups funded by everyone from Amazon's Jeff Bezos to Google. One of the leading figures in this world is a man named Dr. DeGray, who explained the concept behind this industry, saying, aging is a medical problem, and furthermore, it's a really serious one that affects everybody. (laughs) But it's one that we are, in principle, capable of solving. The idea in this industry is to uncover various causes of aging, and to figure out a way to slow or even reverse um, the process through the use of advanced medical technology. Though some write this field off as being uh, pseudoscience, others have concluded that conquering death really is a possibility, and the allure of such a possibility has attracted Uh, Some elite investors and even garnered attention in some of the world's leading research institutions like Harvard and Cal. The quest to find a way, though, to elude death and to live forever, it didn't start in Silicon Valley, of course. Um, It's reflected even in various legends like the legend of the Fountain of Youth, some of which have a very ancient pedigree. The reason behind this basic human impulse is obvious. Death is terrible. It's scary. And it's coming for everyone. It is, in a sense, the ultimate enemy of human beings. So, of course, we would have a deep drive to somehow escape its grasp, to even defeat it with our modern power and ingenuity. Of course, it won't work. Human beings will never be able to defeat death by their own abilities because it is a curse brought upon mankind by our creator as a judgment for Adam's sin. Only God is able, in other words, to deliver us from death. But then you have to ask, well, why would he given our rejection of and rebellion against him. But the surprising good news revealed in the Bible is that God has indeed decided to save a remnant of fallen humanity from death. In fact, we read about it. In the text we've come to this morning, John 6, 48-59, so let's Read these verses together, and as we do, remember, this is the inspired and inerrant Word of God. John 6, beginning in verse 48. 
I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews then disputed among themselves, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. Amen. That's the reading of God's word. Let's remember a few things here about the context of this passage before we dive into it. First, in this book, John tells the story of Jesus through the lens of seven miracles, which he calls signs because they point us to certain things about his identity and mission. This sixth chapter began in verses 1 through 15 with the fourth of these signs in John's gospel. Jesus multiplied five loaves and two fish to feed 5,000 men and their families in a desolate place by the Sea of Galilee. It's the first thing to remember. Second, John also includes in this book many discourses, that is, conversations between Jesus and various people, which inform the reader about who he is and what he'd come to do. And sometimes a discourse would be attached to one of the miracles and would explain what that miracle signified to us about Jesus. And that's true here in John 6. So the miracle of Jesus multiplying the loaves to feed 5,000 is followed by a discourse where Jesus explains to the Jews who ate the loaves what the miracle signified about him. That's the second thing. Third, John also includes seven so-called I am statements of Jesus in this book, which also serve to explain certain things about who he was and what he had come to do. That's why they're called I am statements. The first one occurs in this chapter. This is the first of the seven I am statements in John. And it's part of this discourse which explains Jesus' fourth miracle. So, Jesus multiplied loaves of bread to feed a multitude, and then he explained what that miracle signified by saying, I am the bread of life, in verse 35. That's the third thing. Now, fourth. 
John intended the events surrounding the exodus, the exodus of Israel out of Egypt a long time ago, he intended those events, the events of the exodus, to serve as a sort of backdrop to the events which take place in this chapter. So the Passover feast being at hand, multitudes of Israelites in the wilderness, a miraculous provision of bread to feed them, a supernatural sea crossing, subsequent grumbling by the people in unbelief. All of these echoed the events which took place surrounding the original exodus of Israel out of Egypt. And then this connection between these events in John 6 and that ancient event of the exodus of Israel became even more clearer in the discourse between Jesus and the Jews which followed the miracle. So in this discourse, Jesus claimed to be able to give them bread which was greater than the manna that the Israelites had eaten in the days of Moses after the Exodus. The manna they ate in the wilderness temporarily sustained their physical life in the desert. But the bread that he could give them would provide them with eternal life and that to their soul. Then he claimed to be the true bread of God who had come down from heaven to give eternal life to all who believe in him. In other words, I am this better bread. Unfortunately, we saw last time that just like the Israelites had done after the Exodus, the Jews who were listening to Jesus here grumbled in unbelief at his incredible claims. And now we pick up in verse 48. And we're going to look at the rest of this discourse between Jesus and the Jews, which ends in verse 58. Now at this point, there is a very significant shift that happens in this discourse. Up until now, Jesus had primarily talked about himself as the bread which gives life. Now, he began to talk about himself as the bread which needs to be eaten in order to receive that life. And he begins in verse 48. We see, first, he reiterates that I am statement that he first uttered back in verse 35. I am the bread of life. Then Jesus explained what this meant in the next two verses, 49 and 50. So if you look there again, he said, Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. You see what he's saying? God had miraculously provided bread for Israel out of heaven. That's the manna as a physical food for them to eat so that they would not die physically in the wilderness. But he points out that didn't keep them from dying eventually. He says, your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. But now Jesus claimed to actually be a better bread than that manna because God had sent him down from heaven so that Whoever would eat him might never die. By the way, it's just worth pausing again here 
to note the way Jesus describes himself here as, quote, the bread that comes down from heaven. In fact, he would say it again in the next verse, verse 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. In fact, he had been saying it repeatedly throughout this entire discourse. If you look back at verse 33, he said, For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. And then a little bit later, verse 38, I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And then one more time in verse 41, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Now, just stop and think about what Jesus is saying. Who talks that way? In fact, it confused and confounded, offended the crowds that he would say such things. It says in verse 42 that they grumbled and said, Is this not Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? It was a strange claim for him to make, a provocative claim. It implied that he had existed with God in heaven before he intentionally came down to be born into the world as a man. Could he really have meant that? Well, apparently so. And by the way, John, his, one of his 12 disciples, confirms this about Jesus in the opening lines of the book, saying that he was with God, And was God in the beginning before becoming flesh and dwelling among us? But you say that's preposterous. He's a madman. Really? Well, that's certainly not how the record of his life recorded in the New Testament reads. For one thing, even his enemies had to acknowledge that Jesus was performing supernatural miracles. They had to figure out a way to get around the implications of that, so they attributed those miracles to the power of Satan. And those who spent the most time with him and got to know him best became more convinced than ever that he was who he claimed to be. But since those claims were so fantastic, like, I am the bread that came down from heaven, do you see? We cannot avoid that old trilemma That he is either a liar or a lunatic or he really is the Lord he claimed to be. And if you haven't considered that yet, I hope you will do so this morning. Maybe this will motivate you to pick up and read this New Testament. To really consider who was this man? Or as the New Testament would tell you, who is this man, Jesus? So in verses 49 through 50, Jesus claimed to be a better bread than manna because God had sent him down from heaven so that whoever would eat him might never die. Then he got a little bit more specific in verse 51. He said, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. So far, so good. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. So a few things here. Instead of saying, I am the bread of life, 
Jesus said, I am the living bread. One of those statements emphasizes that he has life in himself. I am the living bread. The other emphasizes that he is a source of life for others. I am the bread of life. Also, whereas in verse 50, he said stated negatively so that one may eat of it and not die. Well, here in verse 51, he states the same thing positively. He says, if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. So again, Jesus claims to have come down from heaven as a kind of bread that God, that, that would give eternal life from God. And those who eat of him will live forever and not die. But then at the end of verse 51, he added this provocative little note. He said, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. It was awkward enough for Jesus to describe himself as a bread that people needed to eat to live forever and not die. But now to specify that the bread which people needed to eat was his flesh. I mean, you could almost hear the teenage girls in the crowd saying, Ew! (laughs) Wasn't Jesus pressing the metaphor here a bit too far? It was starting to sound a bit revolting. We'll talk more about why Jesus did this in a bit, but I want to point out here that Jesus was not being unnecessarily gross in what he said here. Rather, the language he used had a purpose. First, the word flesh, it referred to his human nature, his humanity, especially his human body. It echoed the word of words of chapter 1, verse 14, so famous now. And the word, a reference to Jesus, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And when he said that he would give his flesh for the life of the world. See, that echoes with the language of sacrifice, substitutionary sacrifice. He would give his humanity for, on behalf of, the life of the world. How would Jesus give his flesh for the life of the world? Well, we know, don't we, from the rest of the gospel and from the rest of the New Testament. He would give up his body unto death on the cross as a sin-bearing substitute. You remember what John the Baptist said? said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He would take the, the death stroke, the penalty of death, for the sins of others so that they might live forever. The bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. This is how Jesus would give his flesh for the life of the world. As a substitutionary and atoning sacrifice. And this is a truth which is articulated in many other passages in Scripture, especially emphasizing the the fact that Christ made atonement through his bodily sacrifice upon the cross. Romans 7.4 says, My brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ. Colossians 1.22 says, 
he has now reconciled us, reconciled in his body of flesh by his death. Hebrews 10.10, we have been sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. 1 Peter 1.24 says, He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. And then Jesus says here in John 6.51, And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Notice from this, before we move on, why it is essential for Jesus who was the divine Son of God for all eternity? Why it was essential for him to unite himself to a full human nature and be born into the world as a true man? As it says happened in John 1.14, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Well, one reason, and there are more than this, but one reason he had to become a true man is so that He might be a substitute, stand in our place as a sacrifice for men, that he might give his flesh, his body, his human nature for the life of the world. In short, he had to become one of us in order to die for us so that we might live. If Jesus is not fully man, he is not the bread of life. And he cannot give eternal life to those who eat him. But what about that matter? Jesus had said, if anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now, even if Jesus is talking about his sacrificial death in the body here, as I've suggested, what did it mean for people to eat him? The Jews didn't understand it. We read in verse 52, the Jews then disputed among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? Now their reaction, of course, follows a pattern, a pattern of misunderstanding that runs throughout the book of John, not just here. When Jesus had talked about being born again in chapter three, do you remember that? Nicodemus had said, how can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? When Jesus had offered the Samaritan woman living water in chapter 4, she had replied, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with, and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? And now here in John 6, Jesus talked about eating his flesh as the bread of life, and they said, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? In each case, people misunderstood Jesus' words because they took him too literally. Of course, it's not as if the Jews here thought Jesus was talking about cannibalism. But his words still seem bizarre, don't they? At face value, anyways. And they couldn't figure out what he meant by them. This reminds us of Jesus' words back in verses 44 through 46, doesn't it? That In order for people to come to Jesus in faith, the Father had to draw them. And he did that by teaching them, teaching their hearts to understand and accept the truth about Jesus. And the implication is that that occurred by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
So Jesus himself put it this way in verse 45. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. In other words, we look at this. And we should not say, well, we would have done better than the Jews. But we should say, even our faith in Christ, it doesn't come naturally to us, but it is a gracious gift of God, a gift of illumination of mind by the power of the Holy Spirit, being taught of God. And therefore, we must give him all the glory for it. You would think, however, that given the crowd's misunderstanding of his already provocative statement that they must eat his flesh to live forever, that Jesus would sort of step back, you know, dial it back a little bit, clarify what he meant, but he doesn't. Instead, he presses the metaphor even further in verses 53 through 56. Look, he says, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Now, if the Jews were confused and disturbed by Jesus' words before, when he went on to say in these verses, you must eat my flesh and drink my blood, or you have no life in you, it just must have pushed them over the edge. Not only did he not clarify what he meant by eating his flesh, he simply repeated it and added drinking his blood as well. Indeed, Jesus said they must eat his flesh and drink his blood. If they did not, they would not have eternal life. If they did, they would have eternal life. That is, they would enjoy personal fellowship with him and be raised by him on the last day. But if they didn't, they would continue in a state of death, cut off from him, cut off from God. And that would culminate in eternal destruction. In this sense, Jesus' flesh and blood were true food and true drink. They didn't just sustain the life of the body, but the life of the soul as well. And not just temporarily, but forever. And yet we still haven't explained what Jesus means by eating his flesh and drinking his blood. I mean, surely his words in verses 53 to 56 just left the crowds more curious, more confounded, not less. Is there any way for us to figure it out? It's important to realize that throughout church history, it's been extremely common to interpret Jesus' words sacramentally. In other words, many Christians have believed that Jesus was referring to the need for people to eat his flesh and drink his blood in the Lord's Supper. Indeed, it's not uncommon for modern Roman Catholics to take this passage as just a proof text for the doctrine of transubstantiation, that The bread and wine in the Mass, once consecrated by a priest 
actually become the physical body and blood of Jesus. And so when Jesus says here, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, they would take it quite literally. When you eat the bread and drink the wine in the mass, you are consuming the literal body and blood of Jesus and his life is communicated to you through it. But despite its ancient pedigree, I do not think this is how Jesus intended his words to be understood here. For one thing, it's obvious from the context, isn't it, that he has been speaking metaphorically about himself in this discourse. Just as he was speaking metaphorically later on in chapter 15 when he said, I am the vine. And in chapter 9 when he said, I am the light of the world. So he's speaking metaphorically here when he says, I am the bread of life. And if that's the case, there's good reason to believe he's still using that metaphor when he calls people to then eat him, to eat his flesh and drink his blood. But even more compelling than that is the fact that there are clear signals in Jesus's very words to indicate that eating him is a metaphorical way of referring to believing in him. So, for instance, if you look back at verse 35, Jesus said this. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. So there Jesus says that people quench their hunger by coming to him, and they quench their thirst by believing in him. And coming and believing are synonymously parallel to one another. In other words, The way you eat and drink Jesus, according to verse 35, is by believing in him, coming to him in faith. So why would that not hold true later on in this same discourse? Indeed, I think this is confirmed by the obvious parallel that we also see between verse 54 and verse 40. So look first at verse 54 in our text this morning. Jesus said, Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Now look back at verse 40. There he said, Everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Did you see those two texts? Jesus says almost exactly the same thing, except looking on the Son And believing in him in verse 40 is replaced later with feeding on his flesh and drinking his blood in verse 54. So since they both result in having eternal life and being raised up on the last day, it's logical to assume that eating Christ's flesh and drinking his blood is a metaphorical way of referring to believing in Jesus. St. Augustine himself put it in his comments on this passage. Believe and you have eaten. Remember also when Jesus said back in verse 51, and the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And I argued that that was a clear reference to the way he would offer his flesh, his body unto death on the cross as a substitutionary sacrifice to atone for the sins of his people so that they might have eternal life, that they might live. Well, when Jesus expands this to include his blood, the reference to his death 
becomes even more obvious, doesn't it? Flesh and blood. So when Jesus said, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up on the last day, he's saying that if we partake of his death in the body, if we receive the benefits of his death on the cross by believing in him, coming to him in faith, we will be forgiven. We will receive eternal life. And that includes not just spiritual life now in fellowship with him, but also being raised from the dead in the future to live with him forever. And I will raise him up on the last day. On the other hand, though, whoever does not believe in Jesus does not partake of the benefits of his atoning death and therefore will continue in a state of spiritual death now, alienated from God under his judgment, and will experience eternal death, eternal separation from God in hell. You know, Jesus said basically the same thing in just a little bit of a different way back in John 3.36. There he had said, Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. Now, it should be said that even though I've made the point that Jesus isn't speaking here about eating his flesh and drinking his blood in the Lord's Supper, as many Christians have thought, it is true that the Lord's Supper does refer to the same thing that Jesus is talking about in this text. In other words, both Jesus' words here in John 6, 53-57 and the ritual of the Lord's Supper both refer to our participation in the benefits of Christ's death as Christians. And in this way, John 6 can help us understand the significance of what we are celebrating when we take the Lord's Supper together. The discourse ends with these words in verse 58. This is the bread that came down from heaven, not like the bread that the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. And that sort of sums up the point that he's been making throughout the discourse. Brings a full circle back around. Jesus claimed to be the better bread than the manna which their forefathers had eaten in the wilderness because God had sent him down from heaven so that whoever would eat him by faith might never die but have eternal life. So what do we make of all this? What does it have to say to us today? Well, first and foremost, this passage tells us a message of good news, doesn't it? The good news that that age-old quest to find a way to escape from death and to live forever, it's not in vain, except it's not going to come out of Silicon Valley's life extension industry. It comes through Jesus Christ. He has come down out of heaven to give life to the world. And he did this by giving up his own flesh unto death as a sacrifice for the sins of everyone who will believe in him. In other words, Jesus died so that we might live. And now all who will simply feed upon him, that is, 
who will come to him in faith, who will believe in him, who will trust in his death to atone for their sins, will be saved from death and live forever. As he put it in verse 51, I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. But the eternal life which Jesus gives, it's not just physical and earthly. If you're just interested in extending your physical life in this world, you know, like many who have vainly searched for the fountain of youth, then Jesus has nothing to offer you. The eternal life he offers you is far better than that. See, we are all born into this world as guilty sinners. We're corrupted in our nature and therefore condemned before a holy God. The Bible describes this condition as being, Ephesians 2, 1, dead in our trespasses and sins. It's death because it means we are alienated from our Creator relationally and headed to an eternal destruction in hell. Jesus offers to save guilty sinners, all of us, from this state of death and to give us an eternal life. And that eternal life which he offers, it begins with new spiritual life in the present. Right? What he talked about in chapter 3. Being born again. Born of the Spirit. In which we are reconciled to God through his sacrificial death. But it also involves, as we do grow older and and die in the body, a hope of bodily resurrection from the dead at the end of the age to enjoy an eternal fellowship with him in the new creation. This is the life which... It's not just physical life. It's spiritual life. It's not just everlasting life, but life in loving fellowship with God forever who alone can satisfy the hunger and the thirst of the human soul. It's true life. It's abundant life, as Jesus would say in John 10. So if you haven't already, the question for you is, will you come to Jesus in faith to receive this life from him? He is the bread of life. Whoever feeds on him will live forever. But second, This passage gives us a sober reminder that believing in Jesus requires accepting him on his terms. This is not a seeker-sensitive sermon, is it? Jesus was not trying to market himself to the Jews in a way that was tailored to meet their felt needs. Rather, when the Jews in this story began grumbling against Jesus in their unbelief, Jesus intentionally began presenting himself to them in a way that was perfectly true and in its own right beautiful, but would be difficult for them to accept. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat of the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. I mean, these words were so challenging that it goes on to say in verse 60, when many of his disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? 
It didn't seem like a very good church growth strategy. Instead of gaining him followers, Jesus' choice of words here drove many of his followers away. It says in verse 66, later on, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So why did he do it? I mean, he didn't have to describe himself in this way. You know, I think it was to emphasize to his hearers in their hubris as they began grumbling against him that they must accept him on his terms. You see, Jesus will not negotiate with men. He will not capitulate to their whims or accommodate himself to meet their societal standards or their philosophical paradigms. He is God. I mean, what hubris we have as human beings to say to God that he must be like this or that before we will believe in him. I mean, in reality, mankind has no option. We must believe in God as he has chosen to reveal himself in Jesus Christ, or we will perish under his righteous judgment. It's as simple as that. We don't get to set the terms. We must accept Jesus on his terms. This is why belief in Jesus Christ involves a radical self-abandonment. We must die to ourselves, the Apostle Paul said. We must take up our cross to follow Jesus, Jesus himself said. It involves holding nothing back, but committing ourselves completely to him, no matter where he takes us. It's the commitment that Peter expressed in verse 68, later on in this passage where he tells Jesus, it says that Jesus said to the twelve, do you want to go away as well? And Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. So second, it gives us a sober reminder that believing in Jesus requires accepting him on his terms. But finally, third, even as we say, this hard saying that Jesus requires us to accept him on his terms, as he has revealed himself, not as we would want him to be, yet the way he has revealed himself to us is eminently worthy of acceptance. Consider even the most difficult things that Jesus said in this discourse. I mean, look at that awkward verse 51. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And then again in verse 53, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Yes, It is strange to hear Jesus talk about giving. There is something wonderful about it, too. It tells us that Jesus is giving us himself. The eternal, divine Son of God has come down from heaven to become our bread. More than that, he has died 
so that he might become life-giving food to our souls. That's what the language of eating his flesh and drinking his blood signifies. He came down from heaven. He took on a human nature so that his body might be broken and his blood might be shed on the cross for our sins, that we might live through his death. And now he has risen from the dead on the third day and ascended into heaven and he offers himself to us as food, saying, eat of my flesh and drink of my blood. How? By coming to me in faith, by trusting in my death to atone for your sins and I will give you eternal life with me. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. Do you see? Yes, there is a sense in which those words fall hard upon our ears. Yes, they are difficult in one sense to accept, but they are worthy of our full acceptance because they are pregnant with the most incredible love and grace that we could imagine. They speak of a God who becomes bread for his creatures, of a king who gives his flesh for the life of his people. There is none like him. Why should we not come to him? Why should we not believe and trust in him? Why should we not love him who first loved us in this way. Why should we not follow him, whatever the cost, and serve him with steadfast love and loyalty as his new covenant people? Where else are you going to find a God, a king, like Jesus? There is none like him. Death is a terrible foe. And it is coming for everyone. So, of course, we loathe it. We want desperately to escape it. That's what the life extension industry in Silicon Valley is trying to do, but they will fail because death is God's judgment for human sin. And only he can save us from it. But to our surprise and wonder, in this text this morning, we hear this good news that Jesus has come from God to do that very thing. In the words of verse 50, it says that he is, quote, the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I pray that every one of us in this room today will be those who hear these words and will have fed upon Jesus by believing in him. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you that you have given us a greater manna from heaven, not just to keep our bodies alive in a wilderness place, but to keep us alive, body and soul, for all eternity through simple faith, simple trust in your Son. He is the bread of life. We thank you for these bold promises. 
that whoever believes in him has eternal life, and he will raise us up on the last day. Oh Lord, if there's any soul in this room that has not yet fed upon Christ, we pray that you would draw them to him today. And for those of us who have fed upon him by your grace, that we would grow in our knowledge of and love for him as a result of studying these things together, hearing your words of life in this text. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.